I don't know what uh, you're watching at the moment. If you uh, watch Netflix, if you're uh, following a particular programme, whether you're a Strictly fan, uh, I certainly am, uh, whether you're a rugby fan, and you might feel a bit raw this morning, depending on who you are supporting. Uh, but what I've been watching over the last week a little bit is the Beckham documentary. Who, who's seen the Beckham documentary? Gosh, Catherine Coyles, I thought you would have done. Um, there's quite a few... <laughs> She's a very big fan. I thought you were a dead set. Anyway, there's a lot of us here who are. Um, I, I really have found it interesting and actually really quite sad because you see this man who, if you probably asked any schoolboy or girl uh, in that generation growing up who they most wanted to be, it would have been Beckham or maybe Posh Spice or one of the Spice Girls. And yet you watch them as they navigate this business that we're going to look at today of identity that Beckham is the young hero where the crowd just can't get enough of him. They're having their haircuts like him. They're shouting him on. They're loving him. He's adored across the world. He was almost like a god, apparently, in Asia. Absolutely incredible. And then he does one thing wrong, and it is wrong. He gets sent off, and everyone is so angry. And I hadn't realised just quite the vitriol that accompanied him for the best part of three or four years that he was slated, booed every time he went on. His wife, they'd, they'd shout things out about her from the stands. And that he had a hideous time with brutal mental health, uh, just feeling that he'd failed the whole nation. Uh, and imagine, you know, we're hard on ourselves, but imagine that every day that you get up in the morning. And it was a reminder to me that actually the crowd is around all of us, sometimes cheering us on, saying, you did a good job today, a little bit like Andy's maybe shared. But actually we have the other crowd, the other voice that says, you're rubbish, you're not enough, you never will be. And our identity is very, very fragile, particularly with a world that is shouting as loud as the crowds and the media did for the Beckhams. Paul Vinefield, uh, in his paper, A Hero's Story, says this. He said, Lenin Cohen once said that he had a teacher who told him, the older you get, the lonelier you become, and the deeper the love that you need. This is because we go through life and we tend to over-identify with being the hero of our own stories. And this hero isn't having fun. He's being kicked around, humiliated and disgraced. But if we can let go of identifying with him, we can find our place and a love more satisfying than we have ever known. And in this pivotal chapter of Mark, we've got to chapter 8, and Jesus has been demonstrating who he is. He's been demonstrating the kingdom. He's been demonstrating that he loves people, that he draws people out of the crowd, that he doesn't see people as a crowd, but he sees every person individually. He's brought healing. He's brought power. He's just fed the 5,000. And so the disciples must be on a bit of a high. This is the saviour. This is the one that we are following. And this is the pivotal chapter in the whole story that we're looking at of Jesus. Because he's shown who he is, but now he starts to talk about his purpose. And this is where the good news seems to end for the disciples. Because it's that he has to die. That he must die. And so suddenly this good news has a real kind of crash moment where they think we weren't expecting that. And Jesus says that actually he comes as a broken Messiah as we've been singing. Two really important things have happened. One is that Jesus has healed a blind man, a man who was blind, and he's done it 
in two stages. And I found this quite significant when I was praying for us about today. He heals the man and the man can see partially and he says, oh yes, I can see people look a bit like trees walking around, waving their arms about. And then he actually puts his hands and the dirt in his eyes again and the man sees fully. And I think it's significant that Mark puts that right there before Jesus gathers his disciples and says, who do men say that I am? Because he's actually saying, do people really see who I am and what I'm about to do? And do you see it? And the answers are mixed, aren't they? Because we realize that actually the disciples don't see it fully. They see part, but they don't yet see fully. And Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And there are various answers. But then he says, who do you say that I am? And I was reflecting as I was praying for us and just thinking, in a way, is this not the most important question in our lives? Who do we say that Jesus is? Who do our lives say that Jesus is? How do we confess him, as we heard last week from Nathaniel? But how do our lives reflect his identity? I googled what are the most important questions we will ask in our lifetime, and here were the top five, according to Google. Where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? How should I live? And where am I going? And in Jesus, we have the answer to all of those. And I don't think that's a glib statement. I think that's an absolutely true statement because it all hangs and falls on the fact that actually we have a saviour, that we have an identity that is new every day in his grace and in his mercy. In this great question, who do you say that I am? And in a way, our attempt to tell our stories week by week, and we've got one coming up in a minute, um, we're saying that. We're just saying to you, can you tell us who do you say that Jesus is? Can you tell us? And just thank you so much for doing it. If you're still about to do it, I think we're going to up the ante a bit with a little bit of a cheeky deadline. Only because people keep saying, yeah, I'm on it. And we sort of think perhaps there might need to be a little bit of an adrenaline rush on that. But um, who do we say that Jesus is? And that might be something that you want to go away and reflect on. Certainly be doing that in your group life. Who is it that we say that Jesus is? But for now, let's hear from our lovely Jackie Nicholl. Hello, uh, my name's Jackie and I've been a member of Riverside Church for some years now and over the last year I've become an employee of Riverside House which is amazing. Um, I feel it's a great privilege and uh, well, I want to do well, I want to serve well uh, because at the end of the day the big man up there is my boss <laughs> so you know I want to serve the best I can. However, that has not always been the case for me. Um, you may remember some years ago I did do my testimony and that was quite a painful thing to do at the time, you know, looking back at my past and verbalising it, um, but also taking ownership for it and understanding what impact others had on my life that wasn't always good. But I have to say, it was a very freeing thing to do, to take that weight off my shoulders, to not live with that cloud over my head, you know, oh, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, I'm unforgivable. And that changed for me. It's taken me years to learn to love myself 
and it has taken years for me to forgive myself, but more importantly, uh, I have learned to forgive others, which has totally opened up my heart, and, and that is God's work in me, that is 100% sure of that one. Um, I didn't know the God of love and forgiveness, um, but now I do, and it, it, it is incredible. And I think, when I think about my journey, I think it actually probably started um, when I gave birth to my son, and that was 26 years ago. And this was after I'd been told that I wouldn't be able to have children. And when I gave birth to Jay, I just felt I had to acknowledge God. I had to say thank you, you know, and and I, I truly believe that is probably the real beginning of my journey. And don't get me wrong, I am still making mistakes. I still fall, I still stumble. And sometimes I wish I could cut my tongue out of my mouth and things like that, you know. Um, but this time I know Jesus walks with me. I know he's at the helm of my life now. And I know he holds me up, he protects me, and I know that he loves me. And that is beautiful, to be honest. Um, but my journey is not over, and my story is not over. I know God has more plans for me. I don't know what they are yet. <laughs> I'll let you know when I know. Um, but yeah, so that's my story so far but there will be more to come. Thank you for listening. Bye. It's just such a blessing to hear people's stories. Jackie's getting ready for open lunch, so uh, perhaps you'll get to hear it at second service. But um, what a beautiful testimony. I love what Jackie said. I know now he is at the helm. And there's a relief in that, isn't there? And really that's the crux of this passage, that Jesus is saying to his disciples you're following me, he's going to go to his death and he's going to rise again so that it is finished in our lives. So that that courtroom that we all go in every day, whether we like it or not, there's a mental courtroom that we go in and there's the prosecution and there's the defence, isn't there? And a little bit like Andy shared, you know, we're thinking I'm going to let, I'm going to let the school down, I'm going to let the nation down, in Beckham's case, whatever it is, let my parents down, whatever it might be. Jackie talked about feeling unlovable, all of those things... And actually, Tim Keller says, come out of the courtroom, O Christian. The verdict is in, and you are loved. You're loved, you're accepted, you're enough. You know, I was going through a really tough week, and someone just wrote a card to me that said, Judy, you're enough in Christ. We beat ourselves up. We think that we're not enough, but we are enough because of this incredible love. And Jesus asked Peter, and Peter, as ever, probably one of our favorites, says, I know who you are, you're the Messiah. Uh, in this book of Mark, he says slightly different things in Matthew, but in that, he says, you are the Messiah. And he's got half the picture, so half of his spiritual blindness has definitely been removed. He knows that this is the one prophesied about. This is the Son of Man that they've talked about, the Son of God. God come to earth, the Messiah, but he thinks that it's the Messiah that's going to be a political overthrower, that's going to show might and power. The Messiah was supposed to do three things, to rebuild and cleanse the temple. He had to defeat the enemy that was threatening God's people, and he had to bring about justice and healing and power to the world. 
And actually, all those things are true if we think about who Jesus was and is, but so much more. And actually, he thought, and he'd be, Peter had believed this since he was on his uh, mother's knee or whatever, he'd, he'd believed this all his life, uh, actually, that the Messiah would come in power. And suddenly, Jesus goes on to say, it's not going to look like that, Peter. And Peter is so mad that actually Jesus says he's going to go on to die because he sees that, that actually they're on the team, he's the captain, and they're going to lose. He, he thinks that's going to happen, and so he rebukes Jesus. And the word rebuke that is used in Mark is as strong as the way that Jesus talks to the demons. So it's not just wagging a finger. He erupts at Jesus saying, no, that's not, we, we thought you were just going to make everything right. And we look at our world today, and everything isn't right yet. And that's the point. Jesus says he is going to die, and then, after three days, he will rise again. He is going to be the suffering servant, and actually he's going to call us who follow him and his disciples to suffer for and with him. So let's go on then to read uh, about this love that Jackie so beautifully talked about uh, William Vanston um, talks about the fact that there are two types of love, false love and true love. And he says, in false love, your aim is to use the other person for your happiness. But in true love, your aim is to spend yourself on behalf of the other because your joy is that person's joy. And I was challenged by that. And I think if you're in a relationship of any kind, that is a challenge, isn't it? Because maybe we're in a marriage and we're saying, I'm not sure you're making me happy anymore. Maybe we feel, oh, I'm not sure that I want to be part of this family anymore. I'm not sure I want to be in this life group anymore. Whatever our, our terminology might be. And, and, and the culture feeds that, doesn't it, all the time. Are you getting what you want? Are you getting what you need? And yet here is the reverse. This false love that is in us all. In false love, our aim is to use the other person for our happiness, but true love spends itself for the other. And that's the love that Jesus is introducing, the kind of love that he has for you today, the love that actually loves you when you're still asleep, loves you when you first wake up and you haven't done anything yet. You haven't even entered the, the courtroom, as it were. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and in three days rise again. And the disciples don't hear the last bit. And I think sometimes we can be the same. The disciples are disappointed in the news because it seems to be a broken message, a broken hallelujah, a broken saviour. And maybe they don't even stop. We don't know. Maybe they don't even hear the bit at the end that he says in three days he will rise again. But he must suffer. And the disciples want to do everything they can to actually change that. But Jesus says, no, his power will be made perfect in weakness. And the same is true for us, that we are broken, that we are fragile, that we are those cracked pots, those, those pots with treasure in jars of clay. But the beautiful thing is, the more that we look at Jesus, the more we can't help but reflect him. And actually, it's not a try-harder model, as we've said throughout this series on the story. It's a getting to know Jesus, living for him, so that our lives can say who he is. 
He says, if anyone would come after me, and this is difficult stuff, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, for whoever wants to save his life must lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. Now, in case you sort of perhaps are new to faith or you're looking at faith today, I want to be very clear on what Jesus is and isn't saying. This is not some weird suicidal mission that he's introducing. The word life here is psyche, meaning selfhood. He's saying whoever sort of loses their selfhood, they're living for them, they're being the hero of their own story and hands over the helm, as Jackie said, to Jesus is gaining everything. There's a relief to that, a release to that, that every single day that we're here, he's the hero of our story, not us. And that's an adjustment that I believe we need to make in Christ each day to just say, you're leading today. I'm living to say who you are, Jesus, most of all. He goes even further. Jesus says, what good is it for a man if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your soul? And we see this time and time again in the media and in our own lives. We see the people who win the lottery and say, I wish I could give the whole money back. And loads of people have that story. We see the people who seek fame and then say, I wish it had never happened to me. It's the worst thing, not the best thing that had happened. And yes, those are extreme examples, but there's a sense for all of us that we know. What does it profit us if we gain the whole world, but we lose that connection with Jesus? And that's what he's wanting, the relationship with him, the fact that everything comes from there. C.S. Lewis brilliantly once said, the more we get us what we call ourselves out of the way and let him, Jesus, take over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are waiting for us in him. I love that last bit. Our real selves are waiting for us in him. That actually we do all this self-help and some of it's healthy and some of it maybe not. We try and work on ourselves. But actually the more we look to Jesus, the more we engage with his story, then actually we do start to have our true selves. I remember hearing uh, Nick Cuthbert preach years and years ago uh, when I was at an evangelist uh, conference. And I'd never met the guy before. This is the guy who started this church along with many others. And uh, he was preaching about the Holy Spirit. And he was saying, you know, I'm a little bit worn out with people saying the Holy Spirit makes you weird. And he was quoting a lot of weird things that were going on. And he said, the Holy Spirit makes you more natural than you have ever been because it reveals your true self in Christ. You reveal and reflect him. And I find that really brilliant. And apparently, you can hear me laughing extremely loudly on the recording of uh, uh, Nick Cuthbert, the first time I ever heard him speak, because I just thought, yes, I don't want to just sign up for something that makes me weird. I want to be the true person, the best version of myself because of this love, because of this love, because that's how we start our days and tell his story. We are fully alive in Christ, but the process is to die to our old self. And I wonder, as we come to communion, do we realise that statement, that the verdict is in on you and I, and that you are loved beyond measure, that we are loved beyond measure, approved and not only that, but you reflect Jesus in a way that nobody else can. But as you look to him, 
your life says. Who do you say that I am? And your answer is in your life. I love Nate's challenge last week when he said, look at your diary and be intentional. You know, pray for those opportunities. And I found myself randomly on Tuesday night at my book club just telling the story of how... Um, the Holocaust play that we're doing at the moment, the guy that turned up that had had a vision of Jesus. And it felt the most natural thing in the world. I didn't sort of psych up for it, but I had prayed for my week for those opportunities to tell his story. And the reception was amazing. In fact, two of the women have asked to borrow the book, and it's a book of forgiveness in Christ. And that was, that's that intentional thing of just saying, Jesus, it's, I'm not the hero of my story. And I'm quite shy by nature. Sometimes I struggle to go into social settings. And sometimes I think, oh, you know, what will people think of me? But actually, as the challenge comes through this passage, the most important thing is, what will they think of Jesus? And I'm pretty sure that, I hope anyway, that I left book club on Tuesday night with them thinking about that, not me. Uh, and I think often we think people are thinking about us, us a lot more than they actually are. Do you, do you ever think that? I remember the very wise Ruth Mackey saying to me, she said, most of the time I think people aren't thinking about me at all. And I thought, oh, yes, that's true. <laughs> and actually we, we all need that, don't we? Uh, there's a brilliant book, Tim Keller's The Art of Self-Forgetfulness, uh, which really um, tackles this really well. Steve Brown says this, Jesus invites us to a dance and yet we have turned it into a march of soldiers, always checking to see if we're doing it right and are in step or in line with all the other soldiers. We know a dance should be more fun, but we believe we must go through hell to heaven, so we keep marching. Now, I've shared that before, but I love it, and I've prayed for many people over the last few weeks who've said something along those lines, that we want to find the dance, not the march. And the dance comes from where? From joy from knowing that we're a child of God, that knowing that we're loved, knowing that we reflect Jesus even when we don't realise it. And one thing really stood out for me, and I want to just sort of leave you this question to chew on, that as Christians, if you are a Christian today, and many of us are, have we just transferred one form of performance-related identity to another? I'll just say that again because it's not on the screen. It's not my wisdom, it's someone else's. Have we, have we exchanged one set of performance-rated identity for another? In the sense that, are we still saying, and I hear this many, many times, I'm not a very good Christian, I, I do things wrong, I, I'm, not good as, I'm not as good as the people in my life group, or I haven't got a very good quiet time, or I haven't got very good, and, and you hear it all of the time. And actually... It's similar to what we had when we were living in the courtroom, saying, oh, the verdict is in and I'm not a very good Christian. No, the verdict is in and you are, because you are a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus, saved by his love, rescued so that you can tell his story, so that we can tell his story. After creation, God said, it is finished, and he rested. After redemption on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, so that we can rest. Going back to what the Messiah was prophesied to do, he is rebuilding and cleansing the temple in all of our hearts. He did defeat the enemy that was attacking us, which was sin and death, and he won. He has commissioned us to bring about his kingdom of truth and healing and justice. He came as a servant king to remind us that our true identity is found in his true and unending love. 
so that we can, like him as the servant king, serve and love his people. Who do we say that Jesus is? Let's pray together. Perhaps the band could join me and uh, we're going to respond now.